All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Namaste-sayas-pati-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhyam-dhy
and the audience for such topics should be anxious to hear about him. When such a combination is possible, namely a qualified speaker and a qualified audience, it is then and there very much congenial to continue discourses on the transcendence. Professional speakers and a materially absorbed audience cannot derive real benefit from such discourses. It's quite a statement if you really think about what that means. Professional speakers make a show, a Bhagavad Saptaha, for the sake of family maintenance. And the materially disposed audiences hear such discourses, a Bhagavad Saptaha, for some material benefit, namely religiosity, wealth, gratification of the senses, or liberation. Such Bhagavatam discourses are not purified from the contamination of the material qualities. But the discourses between the saints of Nagasharanya and Sri Sutta Goswami are on the transcendental level. There is no motive for material gain. In such discourses, unlimited transcendental pleasure is relished both by the audience and by the speaker, and therefore they can continue the topics for many thousands of years. Now Bhagavad Saptahas are held for seven days only, and after finishing the show, both the audience and the speaker become engaged in material activities as usual. They can do so because the speaker is not Bhagavad Pradanta and the audience is not Shushushatam, as explained above. Tanno Bhavan Vai Bhagavat Pradano Mahatam Aikanta Parayanasya Harer Udaram Charitam Vishudam Shushushatam No Vidano Tividvan. O Sujiko Swami, you are a learned and pure devotee of the Lord, because the personality of Godhead is your chief object of service. Therefore, please describe to us the pastimes of the Lord, which are above all material conception, for we are anxious to receive such messages. Now, these statements by Srila Prabhupada, I think, challenge a lot of our assumptions about what does it mean to practice bhakti. And to some extent, they seem to be out of sync with some other statements of the Shastra and some other statements of Srila Prabhupada. We may tend to think that activities of bhakti, which automatically purify us, whether we know or not, and regardless of how our consciousness is, are in some set list, that we have a list. Okay, you chant Hare Krishna, you read the Bhagavatam, you go to a holy place, you take prasadam, and you will make spiritual advancement whether you know it's a spiritual activity or not, regardless of your motive, regardless of your consciousness, it doesn't matter, you'll make advancement. Yes, we tend to think like that. These are intrinsically spiritually potent activities, and then we have other activities which we feel are intrinsically not spiritually potent activities. And we can make a list, which I do sometimes in a longer seminar, and ask people to make a list. What activities do you understand as being intrinsically spiritual, and what activities do you understand as being intrinsically material? Now, I think we understand at least theoretically, although the application is one of, I believe, one of the largest challenges facing our Krishna consciousness movement, that the activities which we label as material can be spiritualized if done in the proper consciousness. We at least have that as a theoretical concept, that I could fully spiritualize my driving to work, my job, my family activities, my bodily care activities, that those activities could be as good as the intrinsically spiritual activities. We have that as a theoretical, philosophical idea, right? Yes? 
in practice, our preaching in ISKCON and our mood in ISKCON doesn't support that philosophical concept very much. The, the main thrust of our preaching is that if you're really Krishna conscious, you'll do this set of activities and not this set. I'm not talking about breaking the regular principles. I'm talking about having an honest livelihood, supporting your family, paying your electric bills, taking your kids to the park. I'm not talking about you know running a brothel. So, you know, we, we tend to have this mood that if you're really serious devotee, you will engage just in hearing Bhagavatam, chanting Hare Krishna, going to holy places. And, you know, if you want to take care of your family and you want to have a job, okay, yeah, we'll accept it. And you can spiritualize it. We, we don't tend to see in our practical preaching and in our, in our explicit practical preaching and in our implicit way that we behave in ISKCON. To what devotees do we give the greatest respect? Who has the greatest status in our movement? How do we treat people? How do we set up our communities? We don't really set them up that way. We, we, really, are, we really have a, a mood, both explicit and implicit, that there's these you know, two vastly different worlds. But one thing that we don't talk about very much, it's, it's there, Prabhupada repeats it often, it's in the Shastra, is that these so-called intrinsically spiritual activities may not always be so. That it's not just if you chant Hare Krishna or you read the Bhagavatam or you eat food offered to Krishna, that necessarily that is a spiritual activity. And that's, again, that's a concept we don't generally say. We don't generally think about it, even though it's there. Even though it's there in a purport like this. You know, our general mood is, these are intrinsically spiritual activities, bus. So I see that this, this, this purport challenges us. And it challenges us in, in one sense, it, it, you could say it's irrelevant that Srila Prabhupada is speaking here about people that have nothing to do with the Hare Krishna movement at all. But in another sense, I think it's something that we should take into consideration. That it's not just what we're doing with the body that makes something bhakti or not bhakti. That bhakti is not just a physical activity. And if we think of bhakti as just a physical activity, we may not be progressing in the way that we would like. So what's turning the reading and hearing of the Bhagavatam here, that Prabhupada's referring to in the purport, he's making a distinction. He's saying in this verse is talking about a speaker who is Bhagavat Padana. So Bhagavat means, of course, Krishna. Padana means the chief, I believe, yeah. Chiefly. And their proper translates as the personality of Godhead is your chief object of service, which is kind of interesting. Then we also have, of course, the word ekanta. Ekanta means only. So ekanta parayanasya. You only have the Lord as your shelter. You don't have any other shelter. Although it's interesting that Prabhupada doesn't, um, in the verse, he just says your chief object of service, and in the purport, he's just highlighting, highlighting Bhagavat Pradhana. He's not highlighting, highlighting Ekanta Parayanasya. 
So I, I think that's interesting because Bhagavat, Bhagavat Pradana seems to not be total. The Lord is your chief object of service, but you might have a lot of other ones. He's just the main one. Whereas the other, your exclusive shelter, seems to my perspective to be uh, you know, a stronger statement. But anyway, Prabhupada's taking the other statement. And it's also interesting, which we don't have time to talk about today. But throughout Prabhupada's books, you'll find this situation where there's something in the verse and in the word for word, but not in the Sanskrit verse, in the word for word, but not in the English translation. And you find things in the English translation that are not in the word for word in the verse. That situation is generally Prabhupada pulling something from commentary to explain something in the verse, because you're looking at each verse in isolation, or putting something in the verse that refers back to the previous verse, again, because with the purport, you're breaking up the verses and looking at them in isolation. So... That's you can understand why that's there, but it's, I find it a little harder to understand why something's in the Sanskrit and in the word for word and doesn't show up in the verse and in the purport. But that's a, a whole other discussion. Anyway, so Prabhupada here is talking about the qualifications of the speaker. The qualifications of the speaker is that Krishna is the person's chief object of worship, and we could add exclusive shelter. And the qualification of the hearers is they're very eager to hear, and Prabhupada's pulling out this word, sushrushitam. They're, they're intensely hearing. They're anxious to hear. They're eager to hear. And then he's contrasting that with people who don't have Krishna as their shelter and people who aren't really eager to hear the Bhagavatam for the sake of the Bhagavatam. What are these people eager to hear? And I love this line, just the poetry of this line, harer udaram charitam vishudham. Isn't that beautiful? And if you think about it, that the person saying this line was speaking off the cuff, you know, they, they, the Bhagavatam didn't come, it was written, it was transcribed what people said. And if you think about that, how many of us could speak, how many of us could speak that level of poetry just off the cuff, isn't it? Akeshwara Kashmiri could do that. You know, Akeshwara Kashmiri just composed a hundred verses glorifying the Ganga and then that's such a wonderful pastime. Yes? And then Mahaprabhu said, Would you please take one verse and explain the the ornaments and the faults? And uh, you know he said, which verse? And so Mahaprabhu then recited one of the verses. And and Krishna Kasmiri said, How did you remember a verse? I recited a hundred verses like the wind. And you memorize the verse. I mean, if we covered the board now, how many of us would know this verse, right? And then Lord Chaitanya said, well, just like Saraswati's given you a gift that you could compose a hundred verses like the wind, so she's given me a gift that I can remember a verse after hearing it once. And Kishwar Kashmir accepted that. Okay, that's cool. But anyway, how many of us could do this? I mean, I've written a lot of poetry, and I'll tell you, it's not generally the kind of thing you can just comes out like that. So what are they anxious to hear? They're anxious to hear the pure, transcendental narrations of the Lord for the sake of relishing those narrations. And so Prabhupada's contrasting this. He's contrasting this with the speaker who doesn't have the shelter of Krishna practically speaking at all. A professional person who's 
speaking the Bhagavatam as a way of earning a livelihood. And he's contrasting the speakers with someone who's hearing the Bhagavatam hoping it will give them something in Dharma, Artakama, and Moksha. Not because they really care about hearing about Krishna. So why don't we look at each of these? So let's look first at who should we look first at? The unqualified people or the qualified people? What do you want to look at first? Unqualified. unqualified. All right, we'll end on a higher note. Well, we'll start with the depressing stuff and then have to be. I usually prefer going that myself. So the unqualified speaker. So I, I remember reading about this one Christian preacher who gradually became an atheist. After some time, he realized that he'd become an atheist. And he was making his living as a minister. You know, he was a minister. Not only was he being a minister in one Christian church, but he also gave a lot of public lectures. He became a very famous Christian speaker. So he was actually making quite a good income from preaching about the Bible. And at a certain point, he realized, I've thoroughly become an atheist. I just don't believe in God anymore at all. But he was so accustomed to making his living preaching the Bible, and he knew the Bible very well, and he knew Christian theology very well, that he just kept on going. Which, of course, made him not very happy that he was acting as a hypocrite. And so at a certain point, his wife said to him, if you can be a professional Christian, you could be a professional atheist. And so he started using his speaking ability and his learning to preach atheism. So he, he's now a, you know, a top preacher of atheism in the world. But I thought it was very interesting that at least for some time he was preaching about Christianity without believing anything. He was preaching it. You know, he just kind of was, was stuck there. And gradually, as he lost faith in Christianity, as his faith was waning, he was still preaching Christianity to people. So this is one example. Now you have to kind of feel sorry for the guy. right? It wasn't that he took up the, pre- the ministerial post from the beginning as a hypocrite. He gradually became a hypocrite. He didn't like being a hypocrite. And then he gradually took a position that was more honest. But if you think about it, what was the potency of his preaching during that time that he was fully a hypocrite. It wouldn't have much potency, would it? Okay, and then you have the out-and-out hypocrites. Just the out-and-out hypocrites. So I was, uh, some months ago, I watched a documentary about the, some of what we call the tele-evangelists in America. So I remember one morning, many, many, many years ago, oh my God, I don't know how many years ago, 30, 35 years ago, I was driving a devotee to the hospital for a surgical operation that was going to be done as an outpatient early on a Sunday morning. Like we had to be there 6 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And in the waiting room there was a television. And on the television on a Sunday morning in America, there what's called the tele-evangelists. And so this guy, I'm sure some of them are, are genuine, but this guy was going on and on and on and on and on about how Jesus wants you to be rich. And the test of your faith in God and the test of your devotion to Jesus is seen in how much money you have. That's how you, how do you know. Just like Arjuna asked Krishna, how do you know who's a spiritual person? And Krishna gives the symptoms, right? Lord Kapiladev gives the qualities of a devotee. 
So this man was saying, the symptom you look for is wealth. That's how you know that someone's been favored by the Lord and they're faithful to the Lord. And when I was looking at this documentary, they were giving examples of these people. They had clips from these different televangelists. And one of them was saying, you know how you can tell that I'm faithful to Jesus? Because I just bought a 630,000 million, 630 million, 630 million dollar private jet for my preaching work. In cash, he said. I paid $630 million in cash for my private jet. That's the evidence that I'm actually devoted to Jesus. Um, Whoa. And I can teach you how to do that too. Now how am I going to teach you? Well, you know what the next line is. Just send me money. That's how we pay for his jet. I remember what I had watched on the TV in that waiting room. The guy was saying, if you send me $5, I'll send you a blessed handkerchief. And you put it under your pillow at night. And when you wake up in the morning, you'll be rich. Or blessed oil. And I'll put it on you and you'll wake up and you'll be rich. And in this documentary, they were talking about how these guys will even tell people things like, if you have massive credit card debt, then what you need to do is plant a seed. And that seed will become a money tree for you. And what are you going to do to plant that seed? Take out more money on your credit card and send me $1,000 from your credit card. And doing that will plant the seed that will bring you back the prosperity to write out your credit card debt. And you know where these guys are going in the next life. But this is going on, I'm giving the example of Christians, but it goes on in every religion, doesn't it? You know, the Hindu god-men, give me your money and I'll give you some ashes or something like that. And these people preach scripture. It's not that they don't preach scripture. They do. They recite from the scripture. They talk about, you've got to love Jesus. Oh, you've got to love Jesus. They do. Now, sociologists call such people uh, not really teachers of religion, but teachers of magic. That what they're really doing is they're promising people something magical. In our book, Essence Seekers, we have a, a, a chapter devoted to this kind of, of purple, yeah, this kind of person, which Judd Barrett compares them to very shallow rivers that have sharp rocks underneath. So they look like rivers, they look that they're going to give you relief jump in the river on a hot day, but you fall on the sharp rocks and you become crippled. So these are the people who, they appear to be often, they appear to be part of a religion. Sometimes not. Sometimes they make up their own religion. You know, completely make up their own religion. But other times they piggyback on to a genuine religious system. So they'll piggyback on to, you know, Vaishnavism and preach the Bhagavatam or into Christianity or into any religion. Because people understand that's a bona fide religion. But such people are not teachers of bona fide religion at all. And their only motive, their only motive is to cheat people and enjoy the world. You know, they're actually, you could say, demons in the dress of devotees. And there are people like this in, in, in it's not a particular tradition that has this problem. Every tradition has this problem. So perhaps you're talking about the Bhagavatam, but it goes on everywhere. 
Of course, then you have people who are a little different level, where they are trying to be genuine practitioners of their religion. They are not intentional cheaters and intentional hypocrites. But they think religion is all about dharma, artha, kama, moksha. They're interested in boga and in, in, uh, in bhukti and mukti. They're interested in boga and they're interested in moksha. So Rupa Goswami says they're haunted by witches. So what they're preaching genuine religion and they're trying to do it to serve God. They're, they're not trying to do it just to take people's money in a hypocritical way. But their understanding of their religion is, is polluted. So we have a chapter at Essence Seekers on this as well. The teachers of religion who are haunted by the demons of bhukti and mukti. And this is, you know, your purpose for taking up religion then is so you can, we talked about this quite extensively in Melbourne because there was a verse specifically on this topic. You know, if the purpose of taking up religion is so I can be a good, honest, respectable person, so I can gain wealth or prosperity in the world, so I can have highest sense enjoyment, and so I can become liberated. If that's my purpose for engaging in religion, so then I'm, I'm, the religion is bona fide, but I'm haunted. I'm, I'm a haunted person. I'm a bewildered person. Now, of course, even people like, people like this are not quite in the category of the absolute cheater. People like this are in the category more of Sakama devotees. So when the absolute cheater is preaching, there's no, ben- there's no spiritual benefit for the cheater at all. Nothing. And there's no spiritual benefit for the listeners at all either. Just absolute zero. They, what they've done is they've sucked out all of the potency from the thing. They're not actually getting the thing. They're not even getting a shadow or a reflection of the thing. They're just not getting the thing at all. You could say they're getting a parody of the thing. You know, like Bhaktivinoda says that when they're chanting Hare Krishna, they're not really chanting Hare Krishna. They're just saying the alphabet. It, it's not the thing at all. It, it's something like a Hollywood facade that's not really a house. It just looks like it. I remember going on a Hollywood set when I was a kid. And, you know, I had watched this TV show, and on the TV show it looked like it was a two-story house. But on the set, it was a set of stairs leading to nowhere. And on television, it looked like the person could do magic. But actually, when you saw them filming it, they weren't doing any magic at all. So the the people with these out-and-out cheaters, no one gets any benefit. In fact, not only does no one get any benefit, but Prabhupada says... The teacher goes to hell and the students follow the teacher to hell. Because they're using God. I mean, it would be far, far better if they just taught a system of magic without reference to, to God. But they're using God for, the, for their own sinful, evil purposes. For their, I mean, how exploited do you have to be to ask people to take out money on their credit card when their credit cards are maxed out? I mean, what kind of a black heart do you have to have to do something? So no one gets any benefit, even if it's a real Bhagavatam. Now the next category of speakers, the speakers who just, they have a very materialistic view of religion. In that sense, if they're mixed devotees, there may be some genuine benefit. But it may take a very, very long time to fructify. It will not be very strong, and it will take a long, long time to fructify. 
what has to happen is their reading of the Bhagavatam has to remove the spell of the witches. Like Prabhupada said, if you have a fire with wet wood, you're trying to light a fire with wet wood. So the wood has to dry before it's going to get on fire. So if there's a little tiny piece of dryness in the wood and you can get that on fire, then that will eventually dry the rest of the wood. <coughs> eventually you'll have a blazing fire, but it will take a very long time. So it's interesting, in Manashiksha, Raghunathas Goswami asks us to have love for the devotees who are brahmanas teaching Varnashram, which is that category. It's the category of people teaching religion for the sake of Dharma Artakama Moksha. So we should still love such people, we should respect such people, but we should understand that the process they're doing has very, very little potency and it's going to be over a very, very, very long time. It's like if you put a little spoon of potent medicine and mixed it up with, you know, four or five liters of water. And then you drink a cup of that water. The, the effect is not even going to be very discernible. All right, then for unqualified hearers. So the people who go to these magic things, you know, go to these magical preachers and give them all their money, they don't want anything religious at all. They're just looking for a cheap way to try to, you know, be a materialistic person. That's all they're looking for. And you can understand how offensive this is. You know, if you have something nice and someone's coming to you, not because they want to be with you, but just to get the nice thing from you, and they want to get the nice thing from you by stealing. Well, let me, let me check out your house. Let me pretend to be your friend so I can come at night and steal from you. So that's the mood of the audiences, the audiences and the speakers of these magical performances that are not really religious at all. Their mood is, let's just check out God so we can find a way to steal from him in his name. So again, the hearers don't get any spiritual benefit, and in fact they follow the speakers to hell. Now what about the next category, which is mostly what Prabhupada's talking about here, the listeners who come, not because they really care about Krishna, but because they want Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. And we have to frankly admit that the vast majority of people who come to hear about the Lord in any religion are in this category. So the vast majority of speakers and the vast majority of hearers want that. Isn't that a fact? I mean, even those who come to the Hare Krishna movement, Krishna says, even those who take up pure bhakti, generally have four motives. They want material prosperity. Who's the example of that? Who does Rupa Goswami give as the example of the devotee who came to Krishna wanting material wealth? Juva. Or they come to get free of distress, and who's the example of that that Rupa gives? Gajendra. Or they're just curious. They want to understand what's going on in the world. And who's the example of that? These sages at Namasharanya. An example of the curious. And sometimes there are persons who are already Brahmin realized and they want to go higher. Who's the example of that? The four Kumaras. Now, in our ISKCON movement, I have met a few people who, through some other system of yoga, were already Brahmin realized when they came to Krishna consciousness. I have met a few people like that, maybe five. But I don't think most of us were in that category. So we've probably taken their Krishna consciousness for some of the other reasons. For myself, I came because I was curious and I wanted to become free from distress. That was my motive. 
So, you know, and even after being in Krishna consciousness movement for some time, we may still be here because of some mixture of these motives. We may still be thinking, well, you know, if I chant Hare Krishna and follow the process, then I won't have to take birth again and I can go to Goloka Vrindavan, which is, you know, a really far out heaven. You follow? If that's what's driving us, then we're still looking for bhakti and mukti. And there are definitely people in this kind because they want to be pious, respectable, honest persons. I mean, a number of the people where their whole platform of preaching is Varnashram are in this category. You know, and I met a devotee who said, Varnashram is Krishna consciousness. I'm like, well, not really. But there, we definitely have a contingent of people who are interested in Krishna consciousness because it helps them to be a pious person. They're looking at Dharma. So, you know, the, this contamination may still be there within our own heart. Why am I chanting my rounds? Why am I worshipping the deity? Why am I taking prasada? We may still have some interest in this Dharma art to come. Moksha. But here Prabhupada's talking about people where that's their exclusive interest. They don't have any other interest. They're only interested in Dharma or to come And they're taking up religion for that purpose. So at least these people can be called pious people, sakhama devotees. They can even be called demigods. And the Bhagavatam is urging such people, even if you have all desires, right, sarvakama, even if you desire liberation, moksha kama, you should still worship the Lord. So it's in this category that we encourage people to still have something to do with Krishna consciousness. And if we were to take over the world, I don't know if we would get everybody to be interested in pure bhakti. That would be nice, but I don't know if we could. But at least we could get people to be interested on this level. Now, the difficulty is if both the speaker and the hearer are interested in the Bhagavatam on this level, the result is so minuscule that it's almost imperceptible. And so you see that after such hearing, the people go back to their material activities. Now, it seemed that Prabhupada was speaking here about a speaker in the first category, a speaker who is just an out-and-out cheater and has no interest even in Dharma, Artikama, Moksha, but only interested in cheating. And then an audience who has an interest in Dharma, Artikama, Moksha. Then you've got no result at all. If you've got a speaker who's interested in Dharma, Artikama, Moksha, an audience who's interested in Dharma, then you get a little... But there's a, a, a class where Prabhupada says, if you chant Hare Krishna with offenses, you will get material pains and pleasures. If you chant Hare Krishna in the clearing stage, you will get liberation. And if you chant Hare Krishna with love, you get Krishna prema. It's like, whoa. So now what about qualified speaker and qualified audience? So a qualified speaker is someone who has Krishna as their chief object of worship and Krishna as their exclusive shelter. Now, does that mean that a qualified speaker is at the level of prema? If that were true, then I don't think we'd ever have a class in the Hare Krishna movement. You know, who would, who would sit up here and say, I'm at the level of prema? Therefore, I can... We, we'd have to stop all preaching. You know, none of us could preach to anybody because even if we were at the level of prema, we'd be, we, we wouldn't feel that way. We'd feel I'm so unqualified that I can't preach Krishna consciousness. So what does it mean? It means someone who at least is aspiring to have no material desires, anyabhilasitasana, someone who, is, who wants, who's, who's embarrassed about their remaining material desires and is not coming to the Lord for that purpose. 
maybe that was the purpose initially. But even if there's some remaining desires, is saying, you know, Krishna, I really want just to love you. I'm so sorry that when I'm worshiping you, I'm still thinking about this or that. And you can do with this or that as you like. What we're supposed to do with our material desires as part of this exclusive shelter is to say, my dear Lord, I still have this desire, just like Cardinal Muni. He said, I want a compatible wife. I really do. I really want a compatible wife. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. But I do. But I'm coming to you. I wish I could just love you. I wish I could come to you just out of love. But I am at least coming to you. I want a compatible wife. You do with this desire of mine as you choose. And he says, you know, I have just the girl for you. She'll be coming along with her parents very soon. (laughs) Krishna is your matchmaker. So that is the mood of the devotee. You see, that wasn't the mood of Dhruva Maharaj at first. Dhruva Maharaj's mood at first was just, I'm going to go to Krishna to get a kingdom and get vengeance. But Kardama Muni's mood was, I just want pure devotional service, but I'm also burdened with this desire. And of course, he used it in service. You know, he was supposed to create good population, and that even that God came as his son, so I think he did pretty well with his compatible wife. But that's what we're, if we want to be a qualified speaker of the Bhagavatam, we need to be having Krishna as our exclusive shelter. And we need to, with any other desires we have, offer them at the lotus feet of the Lord. Not deny that we have them. Krishna doesn't like dishonesty. Krishna doesn't like it if we say, you know, I just want pure devotion. He's like, you know, I'm in your heart. I know that that's not true. Why don't we just have an authentic relationship here? So if it can be, you know, I want to have pure devotion, or I want to want to want to have pure devotion, or... I'm at least convinced intellectually and to some extent emotionally that I want pure devotion. But I also have all these other desires swirling around. Can you please help me out with them? Help me to get free of these desires. As Pallad Maharaj prayed to Lord day, if I need to ask for a benediction, I ask for that within the core of my heart to be no material desires. And however you want to deal with that, Lord, if you want to get rid of my material desires without my conscious awareness, that's great, I'll go for that one. If you want to get rid of my material desires by putting them in front of me and having me see them for how disgusting they are and let go of them, that's okay. If you want to get rid of my material desires by giving them to me in such a way that brings me terrible suffering and in that way I get disgusted with them, that's okay. If you want to give me my material desires in such a way that I actually enjoy them in your service and then come to see in your service that your service is higher, that's okay too however you want to deal with him, or if you have some other way, or whatever. I've gotten rid of some desires just by seeing other people's behavior. Has that ever happened to you? Right? You just see somebody else. I remember seeing a god sister who was just constantly talking about her material desires. And I thought, you know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I just let go of those desires myself and seeing that in her. Yes? Sometimes this happens. So Krishna has so many ways of purifying us of our material desires. And to be a qualified audience, even if we have these other desires, we should be relishing the activities of the Lord for his own sake and cultivating that. Cultivating that and relishing the activities of the Lord. When we hear about, you know, how Mahaprabhu dealt with Keshra Kasmiri, we should be excited about that for its own sake. And not thinking, well, if I relish that, maybe I'll also be very smart. 
but just, you know, really enjoying Krishna's pastimes, hearing about Krishna's quality, hearing about Krishna's form. And whatever moments that we have that relishing and all of our other desires are pushed to the side, thinking, yeah, I want more of that. I want more of that. I want more of those times that I'm just, wow, Krishna. And I can forget about all the other anxieties and worries and things that go through my mind all the time and think of them as insignificant. So then we have a qualified speaker and a qualified audience. Now what's also interesting is if you only have a qualified hearer and an unqualified speaker, if the hearer is very qualified, sometimes they get nectar from a dirty place. We have these examples, right? Especially in Chaitanya Lila, of some devotee who is in ecstasy and they're, they're hearing even a Mayavadi speak the Bhagavatam, but just hearing the words of the Bhagavatam they go into ecstasy. And we also have a situation with a highly qualified preacher, such as Srila Prabhupada, who can preach to people who had no interest in spiritual life whatsoever. And by his association, uh, they became purified. So a very highly qualified preacher can have a very strong spiritual effect, even on people who have no interest. And people who have great interest and great enthusiasm can get benefit even from some situation where the person is a cheater just by hearing something from the Bhagavatam. So that also happens. So how can we apply this in our own life? Well, first of all, if we really want what we're doing to have great spiritual potency, even for people who aren't actively looking for spiritual life, we have to have our own lives together. We really need to do that. We have to at least be aspiring for pure devotional service on some level, in some way. And we need to be nourishing and cultivating whatever real attraction we have for Krishna. Whatever love we have for Krishna, whatever affection, whatever attraction. Cultivating it, cultivating it, cultivating it, cultivating it. And if we want to get the real benefit out of being the recipient, then we have to come with that desire, at least to some extent, and be cultivating that desire to hear about Krishna. Cultivating that desire to love Krishna. To whatever extent, even if it's just a spark. Prabhupada said you take the spark and you fan it, fan it, fan it, fan it, fan it. And if we're doing that, frankly, we don't need to be concerned about the remaining dirt in our heart very much. You know, if you're cleaning your house and you're focused on cleaning your house, you really don't have to be in a lot of anxiety about the room you didn't clean yet. Do you follow? You know, if, if you're mopping the floor, you know, you really don't need to worry about the, the part of the floor that's behind you that you haven't mopped yet. You'll get there. Fo- you focus on the part of the floor you're cleaning, and you know, that, and we see this, that if I just take up the practice of Krishna consciousness, We do become purified. Yes, have we all seen ourselves become purified? Sometimes of of really heavy things that we've just become purified. Now how fast, how slow, depends to a large extent on ourselves. It's not just dependent on doing the thing, is the point. Just ritualistically, mechanically chanting Hare Krishna, ritualistically, mechanically hearing the Bhagavatam, it will take a long time. And we have to be very careful also that our purpose in preaching and our purpose in hearing is to develop love of God. That we're, we're not using the Bhagavatam for our own agenda. 
And this happens in our Hare Krishna movement. It's not that just because you join ISKCON and just because you take initiation in ISKCON that automatically doing so, it means that we're not going to be subjected to this kind of problem. That's, that's simply not true. People do use the scriptures for their own personal aggrandizement and they do use the scriptures just to get something for themselves and they do use the scriptures to preach something that's not pure devotional service. This does happen. And people do hear the scriptures for some ulterior purpose. It, it does happen. You know, thankfully, I'd say it's a minority of our movement, but it does go on. So it's something that we should be alert to. And, and take what we're doing as like really, really, really precious. I mean, we can understand this just from our ordinary material human relationships. You know, I mean, all of us have family in the sense that we, you know, we at least had parents, unless both of our parents have passed away. We have some family. We had our parents, maybe our brothers and sisters, or a spouse, or children, or whatever. And if we just think, well, you know, they're family, they're always going to be for me, be, be, be there for me, and we don't treat them nicely, then we may lose our relationship with our family. Isn't that a fact? I've seen people do that. I've seen people just take their family members for granted, use their family members for some, you know, oh, you know, I'll get money, I can always get money from my brother, I can always get money from my brother, I can always get money from my brother. And eventually, the relationships aren't there anymore. Yes? You can understand this even from a material level. So we're dealing with Krishna, we're dealing with a person. We're dealing with a person who wants to love us and wants us to love him. So we should deal very carefully. We should deal very carefully whether we're giving people Krishna consciousness or whether we're receiving Krishna consciousness or some combination of that. And, and not, just, not just take everything for granted, not just think, well, these things are automatically spiritual no matter how I deal with them, so it doesn't really matter. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, just husbands. Yes? Um, I'm just reading Chaitanya Chakshmarita and I'm learning that um, the definitions of Sambhavakyam, Abhidegam, Prayajikam, and I'm definitely in that category of devotee who really wants to go back to Godhead. <laughs> and when I read the um, Chukhapa's explanation of Prayajikam as being a result of uh, devotional service, and he said the ultimate goal of life is to go back to Godhead, and I thought, Yes! Oh, yeah, yes, I thought, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the pure devotee wants to go back to Godhead because they know that in the spiritual world, Krishna enjoys a certain particular type of pleasure, and they want to be there to give Krishna that pleasure. Whereas a beginning devotee may want to go back to Godhead as a desire for liberation and enjoyment. You know, oh, I'm so tired of suffering this world, this world really stinks. And, you know, I can understand that there I'll get the highest pleasure and I'll be liberated from distress. So if our desire to go back to God is really just, I want the greatest happiness and I want to be free from distress, that's bhakti and mukti. But if the devotee is desiring to go back to Godhead because that will give Krishna the highest pleasure to see me again in my original constitutional position, to relate with me in my ultimate form and our ultimate relationship. I mean... Let's again take a material example. So let's say you're, you know, a, a college student, you're away from home, and you think, I want to go back home because my mother makes the best doses. 
you know, here at college I'm just eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I want to go home so mommy can do my laundry. You know, you have that, that, um, the, the, the little picture of the person coming home from college with like a huge suitcase full of dirty clothes. Mom, I'm home! Yeah. And if I go home, I can ask my daddy for some more money. You know, so if somebody's going home that way, the parents will still welcome the kid home. They're not going to say, you know, hey, you just come for the doses and the laundry, and because we help you out financially, get out of here. But, you know. I, I think most parents understand that the children have these mixed motives. But that's very different from, I want to go home because my parents are missing me. My poor mother and father are, are, are missing my association. They're always calling me, you know, when are you going to come home? When are you going to come home? I want to go home so my mother can enjoy feeding me doses. That's different. So for the pure devotee, they want to go home because Krishna is hankering after that relationship with us. Like when Gopal Kumar goes to Vaikuntha and Krishna says, life after life, I was dancing like a fool, wondering, when will you come back? When will you come back? He said, and you never did any service for me. You never chanted my name. You never did anything. He said, so by my laws of karma and the laws of the universe, I had no excuse to bring you home. He said, and then I thought of a way that I could bring you home without breaking my rules. I arranged for you to take birth as a cowherd boy in Govardhan. And by virtue of the credit you got from being in Govardhan, by that unknowing devotional credit, you could start your spiritual journey and I could eventually bring you home. Of course, the devotee who wants to go back to Godhead for that purpose is also ready if Krishna says, hey, I'd like you to stay another lifetime and do another job. So if your mother said, you know, I make doses for you and you're not here to eat them. Like Sachi said that. She says, I'm cooking for my Nimai and he's not here. I can't feed him. But she said, I don't want you to come home because you're a sannyasi. And if you were to come home and eat my cooking, everybody would criticize you. So you stay in Jagannath. So if Krishna says to us, I'd love for you to come back. I miss the service that you would do every day. You used to grind the sandalwood for me and my beloved. And you're not here to do it. But I have a job for you to do. Would you be willing to go to that planet and that universe and help me out? Then the devotee says, My dear Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want, even if it means there's no one there to bring you the sandalwood. Whatever's more important to you, I'm willing to do. Is that right? Yes. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation. Um, I like two points that you make. Uh, one about the challenge that Prabhupada is doing for us, and the second about emphasizing pure devotional service. Um, the the Iskon, how I see, uh, actually has this uh, preaching about pure devotional service, although may not be so common. Because, for example, devotees who, who are my authorities and from uh, whom I'm, I'm getting inspiration, they're very clear that there, is, uh, there are direct devotional service activities 
and there are activities that are indirect, but they can be devotional service, and it's only up to me. Yes. Uh, if I do it to please Krishna. And Srila uh, Prabhupada says in Gita that uh, we should mold our life in such a way yes. that we can take love that. Krishna yes. for That's hours. such a wonderful quote. So that means that, you know, like, we're not going to chant and worship deities, you know, like all around. We have to go through our life, you know, like families and, and, and everything. So I would say that this preaching is there. and um, It's definitely there, but it's not exclusively there. And I was thinking, uh, what makes the difference? And what, what occurred to me is that... Um, on the beginning, we need to create like big uh, discrimination for intelligence. Okay, this is spiritual, this is material. Mm. But once you make progress in devotional life, you need to actually make the different distinction uh, between what is connected to Krishna and what is not connected to Krishna. And between actually activities that are direct devotional service and the other one, and make sure that we can make them devotional service. So I would say that uh, it's there, and uh, I would love to see more as well. Well, I, I really like your point that... You know, in the ultimate stage of Krishna consciousness, you don't see duality. You know, this concept that this is spiritual and this is material does not exist for Krishna, and it does not exist for an enlightened, a fully enlightened soul. But in the beginning, if you don't say this is spirit and this is matter, nobody can progress. So, you know, I, I make that comparison like you teach little children that you can't subtract a bigger number from a smaller number. You can't do 3 minus 5. You just say that's wrong. You can't do it. It's just wrong. But later on, of course, you can do it. You get a negative number, and, and people do it all the time. It's called debt. You know, practically speaking, it's, it is something that people do. Or I used to tell the little kids, don't start a sentence with because. If they started a sentence with because, they, they'd end up with a fragment. But you can start a sentence with because, you just have to know how to do it. So, yes, for the neophyte, we, we do actually, it's interesting, we do actually preach duality. We preach a very strong duality, in fact. It, it's one of our main preaching things, is this duality. But on the, on the higher level, I mean, it says in um, 14th chapter in Krishna book that maya exists only within the mind. So at the higher levels of bhakti, Everything merges into transcendence by Gita 424. You see that everything is Krishna. Krishna is everywhere. But, but, but I, have another, I have another problem besides that. I, I agree with that, and I agree that it has to be that way. It absolutely has to be that way. You, you, can't, you can't preach advanced topics from an advanced perspective to people on a beginning level. You will damage them. But there's another, another thing because I used to teach ISKCON history at Bhaktivedanta College. So most of the people who joined ISKCON in the 60s and 70s were from the counterculture, who were also called hippies. And they had, most of those people, with some exceptions, had rejected family, job, education, career. Right? They were living practically like homeless nomads. And so when those people heard about the difficulties and the, and the entanglement of family life and work in the world, they interpreted it, I'll say we, interpreted it to mean that, oh, I should just be irresponsible because all those things are Maya. Because that's what they were already doing. So because they were already doing that, they took Krishna consciousness as a justification for that. And those people ended up in positions of leadership after, you know, six or eight months of chanting Hare Krishna, because that was what there was. 
and they preach this understanding to the new devotees, and so it tended to perpetuate. So there's definitely still a mood that the renunciates are better situated in bhakti than the grahastas. And there's definitely a mood that if you could sit in Mayapur and just study Shastra all the time, that that would be a superior engagement than staying in Brisbane and working. So there's definitely some consciousness like that that doesn't just have to do with whether you're a neophyte or whether you're advanced, that it has to do with the sociological problem that happened in this and that, that tends to perpetuate, and that I personally feel as um, if we really want to spread Krishna consciousness all over the world, we really want to get people in general to be devotees of Krishna, we, we need to, to target this problem. I think we cannot speed it up because this is like individual growth and I'm getting much on the spiritual life. Well, I'm trying to speed it up, so... And, uh, you know, like Shla Prabhupada, uh, he is a master, so all these elements are present in his preaching. But well, we are not able to just catch certain points and we need to wait, you know, like in time. Well, but again, I don't see it as just a matter of individual development. I see it as a matter of a societal mood. So, I mean, I'm working with another devotee on a book about spiritualizing career with the concept that how do you do, how do you see everything you're doing in the world? How do you experience everything you're doing in the world as bhakti? So I, I am dedicating quite a lot of my time and energy to trying to, to change this, this mentality. And, you know, I was doing some work with Bhakti Vasayan Sagar Maharaj in Mayapur, who's also working very much in this way. And there's, there's quite a number of us in the world who's saying, hey, wait a minute, if, if we want Krishna consciousness to move outside of temples and outside of ashrams in a very meaningful way, and we need to do this. And, and my own personal conviction is that the, the reason that we're not being so effective in preaching to people who aren't from an ethnic Indian background is that we're not presenting this. So that's, that's, that's my conviction. Did you have one other thing you wanted to say? There was something else that you liked? Um, I just share um, one uh, pastime. Shuta Kirti Prabhu was saying that uh, he was in South India, which is the Prabhupada, and they were staying in some like, village uh, in nature close to the ocean. And uh, Prabhupada asked him, why don't you go and have a swim in the ocean? Oh, okay, I remember this. And uh, he was saying, like, how can I go and, like, trying to enjoy myself? And Prabhupada said, like, what do you mean? The sun is, you know, like the, the, the Krishna, you know, like the, the color of ocean, you know, like the, it's, you know, like reflecting Krishna's body. How can you, you know, like be... Yes, yes, <laughs> I remember that story. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Yes, yes you know, I would tend to agree with you, where you know, in the beginning, yes, we tend to explain them the duality between material and spiritual, but then it depends on an individual very soon, uh, you know, we introduce a term Yukta Vairagya, yes. where they can understand, okay, this is a material, this is spiritual, but if you use this impression service, the material becomes spiritual. Yes. So, you know, the, 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 the process hastens there. Yes. Then there are some people, you know, who will uh, take it the other way around. And they'll think whatever we are doing is spiritual. Yes. Something pious is spiritual. Yes. So then you know different strokes or different blocks. So yes. Just, you yes. have to. Yes. So even though on a general level we are trying to hasten the process. Yes. But on an, on an individual level we have to. Yes. Yeah. That is that is quite profound. Yes, definitely. Individual level people are going to go to wherever they can go, but it would be good for us as a movement to have an atmosphere where it's 
easy and fast for people who can progress quickly yes. to do so. Yes. At least as a, as a movement, we shouldn't be holding people back. And we shouldn't be preaching in such a way that people are not, that, that they're struggling a lot with these things. So that's my concern. On an individual level, yeah, people are, you know, they're going to progress at their own rate and they're coming from different backgrounds and, and like that. So that's, that's the point that you were making earlier, that we need to put more emphasis on preaching to a devotional service and what we may think, than uh, just preaching people to join Krishna consciousness. Yeah. Anybody else? Um, I generally tend to read Prabhupada's books, and I feel safe when I'm reading Prabhupada's books. You were talking about the potency of the preacher. Yes. Um, yeah, I was wondering if anybody was going to pick up on that. <laughs> And I've always felt right from the first time I read Prabhupada's teachings that there's just power in this. Yes. Um, and at the moment I'm starting to read sometimes um, books that are not written by Prabhupada, like most recently Chaitanya Bhagavad, because my spiritual master wanted it, us to read it. Mm-hmm. And I'm absolutely loving it. But there's a teeny little bit of fear that it's not presented by Prabhupada. Mm. Well, I, just speaking for myself, um, I read Prabhupada's books pretty much every day. Maybe there's one or two days a year where circumstantially I don't, but I'm reading Prabhupada's books every day, and I'm trying to think if there's any of his books I've even read only once. I recently read Teachings of Lord Chaitanya for the second time. I read that when I first joined, and I was like, you know, I haven't reread that book, and I reread it, and I'm like, wow, what a nice book. You know, and, and... Many of Prabhupada's books, I mean, Bhagavad Gita I've read so many times I can't even count, you know, I'm thinking it's like well above 40. So I, I would suggest that everybody read through Prabhupada's books, but Prabhupada also did want us to read the books of the Eternals. It's not that he didn't. It, you don't have to, but if you read Prabhupada's books, he will say to you in some of his purports, everyone should read Brihad Bhagavatamrita. So if you read Prabhupada's books and you read something like that, and you don't go read Briya Bhagavatamrita. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't have to. Like, like Srila Prabhupada told Jamuna in, I think it was like 1970, he said, I've already given you enough. If you just take what I've already given you, that's enough. You know, how much of the Bhagavatam had Prabhupada translated then? Practically nothing. So he hadn't even started the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And Prabhupada told Shudhikirti, you know, if you read just, talking about Shudhikirti, if you read just one word, which always amuses me, you know, like, it. <laughs> but Prabhupada said, you know, you read the sentence. Chandra Moli Swami told me that once when he was reading Prabhupada's books, he actually heard Prabhupada's voice in his mind. You know, not like imagining, he actually heard Prabhupada's voice. It only happened to him once. But of course, the potency is there in the works of the Acharyas. It's not like there's not potency in Raghunathaswa Swami or in Bhaktivinoda Thakur or Sanatana Goswami. <coughs> you are, of course, dealing with the translator, unless you're reading books that Bhaktivinoda wrote in English. And it's for that reason that in Manashiksha, I did something that I haven't seen done by anyone else, and that is that I give little biographies of the translators. So in the back of the book, I give biographies of the Sanskrit and Bengali translators, and I also included in that book commentary by contemporary Iskand devotees. So I gave biographies for them, and I did that for several reasons. Uh, one of them is I'm hoping the book stays in publication for hundreds of years. And if you just say, you know, so-and-so, it's not, someone may not know 
You know, we may assume, oh, everybody knows who Satyananda Maharaj is, but that might not be true 100 years from now, frankly. So that was one reason, is that because, for example, I rem- I've gotten books, and I got this one book where uh, I was talking with Shiva Ramaswamy. He said, I don't know who wrote the- it. was a book written in Sanskrit about Krishna's pastimes. And he said, I don't know who this author is, and therefore I'm not going to read it. He said, I don't know, if- is this somebody in our line? And there was no biography of the person. And I feel the same way about translators. You know, you'll get these books like, who is this translator? I don't know who this, you know, Krishna Das is. I have no idea who this is. How do I know if I can trust them? I made this point to Srimati in Vrindavan because she was producing books without her name on it, out of humility. And I said, but, you know, how do we know if we can trust it? If I'm going to pick up a book, I have to have some trust in the book. And, the book is by Huh? A book is not, exactly. Right, or um, like my daughter-in-law was, was quoting to me from some things of Bhakti Vinod that sounded a little strange to me, and I said, who's the translator? She said, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I'm a little hesitant. And one of the things I really learned in producing Sri Manashiksha, because there were some existing translations. So one of the existing translations was done by a MISCON member, one of the existing translations was done by uh, a leader in an, another part of the Gaudiya, uh, the Sarasvat Gaudiya line. So the translation done by another ISKCON member, when we were comparing it to the Sanskrit and the Bengali, it was like, whoa, you know, this person really has not produced a translation. They produced their own summary study. They, they basically, you know, taken their realizations about what was there and put it as a translation. And in some cases, it was just blatantly different. And the other translation that I looked at by a leader in another part of the Sarasvagodia line, so those translations were actually quite good. But what this person did is he did what Srila Prabhupada did, and he would sometimes bring his commentary or his explanation into the translation. So he had a translation of the Sanskrit, a translation of the Bengali, and then his own commentary but in the Bengali and in the translation of the Bengali and in the translation of the Sanskrit, he would weave in explanatory notes. Now, if you're his follower, that would be perhaps fine, because she will probably definitely does that. We don't have a problem with that. But if you are not this person's follower, then you reading something that you might think is Ragnathaska Swami, but it isn't. Or you might think it's Bhaktivinoda, and it isn't, and it isn't. He's brought something else in. And we had one place in Manashiksha, in one of Bhakti Vinod's commentary, where I thought this is incomprehensible without adding something. You just somehow, when you took it from the Bengali to the English, it didn't work without adding a few words. So I put it in brackets. I put the words in brackets. So, okay, you can understand this was added. Gopi Pranadhanapu had this problem with translating uh, Sanatana Goswami's own explanations of the Brihad Bhagavatamrita. So Sanatana Goswami wrote the Brihad Bhagavatamrita as a story, and then he also wrote explanations, like you might put in footnotes in your own book. And in some of those, Gopi Pranadhana found that, again, when he translated from the Sanskrit, it just didn't, it didn't necessarily work to do a literal translation to English. So he would, might have to add a sentence here or there. But then he has in the back of the book he has a 
full accounting of any place where he added anything. I, this is what I've added here, this is what I've added here, this is what I've added here, this is what I've added here. So we, I think you can deal like, you know, with that. But even when I read like 11th and 12th canto or the end of the 10th canto in the Bhagavatam, I don't feel quite, I, mean, I have to admit, I, I don't feel quite the same way as what I'm going to show Prabhupada's purpose. So it's a very long explanation, but I hope that that's sufficient for you. And Prabhupada also wanted, you know, when you're saying this, I'm having this sort of angst because I've written books and I have these books here and I'm selling them and I'm asking you to buy them and read them. And it's like, well, what kind of hubris do I have that I'm doing that? But, but Prabhupada told us to do that. He told us to write our own books. He wanted us to write. He wanted us not only to translate the books of the Acharyas. He wanted that. Prabhupada did want us to read the books of the Acharyas. But he also wanted us to write ourselves. It was his desire. So we also need to do that. Now, I certainly don't think you're going to get the benefit from reading my book that you would get from reading Prabhupada's book. But in, in every generation, in every age, it's the idea parampara. We're supposed to take the knowledge and represent it and repackage it according to our own realizations and according to the needs of the time. We're supposed to do that. It's part of our job to do that. If we don't do that, frankly, the tradition dies. You, know, you, you, you have to keep representing it. And, and Prabhupada said that to Bhakti Siddhanta. Oldest of all, but a new dress, miracle done, your divine grace. So that's, you know, if we think, oh, Bhakti Siddhanta, he's just everything, as it is. Yes, but a new dress. And Prabhupada again did that. And that is also, we're supposed to do that. We don't change the truth, we don't change the principles, but we represent it according to the, the time, place, circumstance. That is the tradition. Prabhupada said that is required to do that. And then we, we do our best to be connected with our guru and the acharyas and with Krishna in our writing and our presentation. Even the most important book, Bhagavad Gita, has been now, you know, Rancho Primes, um, Yes, uh, so many. Kalakantas, yeah, and, uh, Kalakantas yeah, rap, Bhagavad Gita, yeah, yeah. Narayani, yeah. Narayani's rewritten verses as poetry, Kalakantas rewritten as poetry, Ranchor, um, Ridai Nandimarsh. Yeah. I, I really, that book that Ridai Nandimarsh did of, of, as a study guide to the Bhagavad Gita, I found to be absolutely wonderful. He, he explains Bhagavad Gita themes and then he gives a literal translation. And many times when I'm trying to understand or speak on the Bhagavad Gita, I'll also reference these other... Ishwar Krishna from Israel. So I'll often reference these. But, you know, Prabhupada's books are Prabhupada's books. What can I say? I heard recently, uh, not recently, sometime back, that Prabhupada's books are like chapati, dal, rice, sabji. You have to eat that every day, or chutney sometimes, some sweet sometimes, some pickles sometimes. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I find my chutney and sweets in Prabhupada's books too, so I'm thinking about that and thinking, I don't know. But yeah, the, but we, we should also be, you know, and it's not that every single devotee has to read all the books of the Acharyas, but at least we should definitely have people in our movement who are studying the books of the Acharyas. I think for me the angst comes when I don't know the author. Like, for you, your book, I'm going to have no angst when I read your book. 
but when I, I read a name and I don't know who that person is, then there's a little bit of, you know... And there, there should be actually a little bit. You should have some, some um, you know, well, well, who is this? Who's the translator? Who's the author? And, and you take that into consideration. It has to be. It has to be. But still, Prabhupada's books are Prabhupada's books. You know, there, there's, nothing is going to substitute for Prabhupada's books. And Prabhupada's books have... Prabhupada is personally there. These are his ecstasies. He's such an intimate servant of, of Krishna. And, you know, and when, when Prabhupada said that he was always being dictated to by Krishna, and the reporter asked, well, how is that? And Ramashwar said, well, you know, he understands the script. Prabhupada says, no, face to face, Krishna is speaking to me all the time. But the others should be there. I mean, we understand the tradition through Srila Prabhupada, but we also understand Prabhupada within the tradition. Prabhupada wasn't standing apart from the Parampara and apart from the Goswamis and apart, you know, he, was, he wasn't some self-made guru. He was always emphasizing that his authority came from being in Parampara. So it, it is important. Again, we, we understand the Acharyas through Prabhupada, but we also understand Prabhupada within the tradition that he that he represented. And for this, at least some people have to study the books of the Acharyas. And a lot of the books of the Acharyas are really nice. They're really nice and they're they're wonderful to study. You know, I think there's so many so much of the writing of Bhakti Vinod and it's not to go swamp. Gopi Gopi Pranandamu is some. I mean, Banuswami's translations, I, I couldn't read all of them. I don't know how he had the time to translate them. I don't have the time to read them. You know, so he's translated a lot, you know, Bhagavad Gita commentaries, Bhagavatam commentaries. These are also very helpful. You know, when, when I have the time, sometimes I have the time, when I have the time, if I'm going to speak on a verse from Prabhupada's books, I'll also refer, you know, where's what Baladevi Jibhushana's commentary, it's an Atagoswami's commentary, it's an Atagoswami's commentary. So that's, you know, he has a, Banuswami has this wealth of translations of books. So I think I should end here. Thank you very much. Thank you for your hospitality. You. Please bless me that I can somehow or other be qualified as a preacher of Krishna consciousness, not be, not be condemned by Prabhupada and these hypocrites. Thank you. Hare Krishna. I hope you'll come again, Mother. Yes, please. If they love. I certainly hope I come again.